Chapter Nine A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Nine A. Lincoln and Slavery, the issue becoming more sharply defined. Resistance to the spread of slavery. Views expressed by Lincoln in 1850. His mind made up. Lincoln as a party leader, the Kansas struggle, crossing swords with Douglas, a notable speech by Lincoln. At the death of Henry Clay, in June 1852, Lincoln was invited to deliver a eulogy on Clay's life and character before the citizens of Springfield. He complied with the request on the 16th of July. The same season he made a speech before the Scott Club of Springfield in reply to the addresses with which Douglas had opened his extended campaign of that summer at Richmond, Virginia. Except on these two occasions, Lincoln took but little part in politics until the passage of the Nebraska Bill by Congress in 1854. The enactment of this measure impelled him to take a firmer stand upon the question of slavery than he had yet assumed. He had been opposed to the institution on grounds of sentiment since his boyhood. Now he determined to fight it from principle. Mr. Herndon states that Lincoln really became an anti-slavery man in 1831, during his visit to New Orleans, where he was deeply affected by the horrors of the traffic in human beings. On one occasion he saw a slave, a beautiful mulatto girl, sold at auction. She was felt over, pinched, and trotted around to show bidders she was sound. Lincoln walked away from the scene with a feeling of deep abhorrence. He said to John Hanks, "'If I ever get a chance to hit that institution, John, I'll hit it hard.'" Again, in the summer of 1841, he was painfully impressed by a scene witnessed during his journey home from Kentucky, described in a letter written at the time to the sister of his friend Speed, in which he says, "'A fine example was presented on board the boat for contemplating the effect of conditions upon human happiness.' A man had purchased twelve negroes in different parts of Kentucky, and was taking them to a farm in the south. They were chained six and six together. A small iron clevis was around the left wrist of each, and this was fastened to the main chain by a shorter one, at a convenient distance from the others, so that the negroes were strung together like so many fish upon a trot-line. In this condition they were being separated forever from the scenes of their childhood, their friends, their fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, and many of them from their wives and children, and going into perpetual slavery. Judge Gillespie records a conversation which he had with Lincoln in 1850 on the slavery question, remarking by way of introduction that the subject of slavery was the only one on which he, Lincoln, was apt to become excited. I recollect meeting him once at Shelbyville, says Judge Gillespie, when he remarked that something must be done or slavery would overrun the whole country. He said there were about 600,000 non-slaveholding whites in Kentucky to about 33,000 slaveholders, that in the conversation then recently held it was expected that the delegates would represent these classes about in proportion to their respective numbers. But when the convention assembled, there was not a single representative of the non-slaveholding class every one was in the interest of the slaveholders. And, said he, the thing is spreading like wildfire over the country. 
In a few years we will be ready to accept the institution in Illinois, and the whole country will adopt it." I asked him what he attributed the change that was going on in public opinion. He said he had recently put that question to a Kentuckian, who answered by saying, "'You might have any amount of land, money in your pocket, or bank stock, and while travelling around nobody would be any wiser. But if you had a darky trudging at your heels, everybody would see him and know that you owned a slave. It is the most ostentatious way of displaying property in the world. If a young man goes courting, the only inquiry is as to how many negroes he owns." The love for slave property was swallowing up every other mercenary possession. Its ownership not only betokened the profession of wealth, but indicated the gentleman of leisure who scorned labor. These things Mr. Lincoln regarded as highly pernicious to the thoughtless and giddy young men who were too much inclined to look upon work as vulgar and ungentlemanly. He was much excited, and said with great earnestness that this spirit ought to be met, and if possible checked, that slavery was a great and crying injustice, an enormous national crime, and we could not expect to escape punishment for it. I asked him how he would proceed in his efforts to check the spread of slavery. He confessed he did not see his way clearly, but I think he made up his mind that from that time he would oppose slavery actively. I knew that Lincoln always contended that no man had any right other than what mere brute force gave him to hold a slave. He used to say it was singular that the courts would hold that a man never lost his right to property that had been stolen from him, but that he instantly lost his right to himself if he was stolen. Lincoln always contended that the cheapest way of getting rid of slavery was for the nation to buy the slaves and set them free. While in Congress, Lincoln had declared himself plainly as opposed to slavery, and in public speeches not less than private conversations he had not hesitated to express his convictions on the subject. In 1850 he said to Major Stewart, "'The time will soon come when we must all be Democrats or abolitionists. When that time comes, my mind is made up. The slavery question cannot be compromised.'" The hour had now struck in which Lincoln was to espouse with his whole heart and soul that cause for which finally he was to lay down his life. In the language of Mr. Arnold, he had bided his time. He had waited until the harvest was ripe. With unerring sagacity he realized that the triumph of freedom was at hand. He entered upon the conflict with the deepest conviction that the perpetuity of the Republic required the extinction of slavery. So adopting as his motto, a house divided against itself cannot stand, he girded himself for the contest. The years from 1854 to 1860 were on his part years of constant, active, and unwearied effort. His position in the state of Illinois was central and commanding. He was now to become the recognized leader of the anti-slavery party in the Northwest, and in all the valley of the Mississippi. Lincoln was a practical statesman, never attempting the impossible but seeking to do the best thing practicable under existing circumstances. He knew that prohibition in the territories would result in no more slave states and no more slave territory. And now when the repeal of the Missouri Compromise shattered all parties into fragments, he came forward to build up the Free Soil Party and threw into the conflict all his strength and vigor. The conviction of his duty was deep and sincere. Hence he pleaded the cause of liberty with an energy ability, and power, which rapidly gained for him a national reputation. Conscious of the greatness of his cause, 
inspired by a genuine love of liberty, animated and made strong by the moral sublimity of the conflict, he solemnly announced his determination to speak for freedom and against slavery, until, in his own words, wherever the federal government has power, the sun shall shine, the rain shall fall, and the wind shall blow upon no man who goes forth to unrequited toil. The absorbing political topic in 1855 was the contest in Kansas, which proved the battleground for the struggle over the introduction of slavery into the territories north of the line established by the Missouri Compromise. Lincoln's views on the subject are defined in a notable letter to his friend Joshua Speed, a resident of Kentucky. The following passages show, in Lincoln's own words, where he stood on the slavery question at this memorable epoch. Springfield, August 24, 1855 Dear Speed, You know what a poor correspondent I am. Ever since I received your very agreeable letter of the 22nd of May, I have been intending to write you an answer to it. You suggest that in political action now you and I would differ. You know I dislike slavery and you fully admit the abstract wrong of it. So far there is no cause of difference. But you say that sooner than yield your legal right to the slave, especially at the bidding of those who are not themselves interested, you would see the Union dissolved. I am not aware that any one is bidding you yield that right. Very certainly I am not. I leave the matter entirely to yourself. I also acknowledge your rights and my obligations under the Constitution in regard to your slaves. I confess I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down, and caught, and carried back to their stripes and unrequited toil. But I bite my lip and keep quiet. In 1841 you and I had together a tedious low-water trip on a steamboat from Louisville to St. Louis. You may remember, as I well do, that from Louisville to the mouth of the Ohio there were on board ten or a dozen slaves, shackled together with irons. That sight was a continual torment to me, and I see something like it every time I touch the Ohio, or any other slave border. It is not fair for you to assume that I have no interest in a thing which has and continually exercises the power of making me miserable. You ought rather to appreciate how much the great body of the people of the North do crucify their feelings in order to maintain their loyalty to the Constitution and the Union. I do oppose the extension of slavery, because my judgment and feelings do prompt me, and I am under no obligations to the contrary. If for this you and I must differ, differ we must. You say, if you were President, you would send an army and hang the leaders of the Missouri outrages upon the Kansas elections. Still, if Kansas fairly votes herself a slave state, she must be admitted, or the Union must be dissolved. But how if she votes herself a slave state unfairly? that is, by the very means for which you would hang men. Must she still be admitted, or the Union dissolved? That will be the phase of the question when it first becomes a practical one. In your assumption that there may be a fair decision of the slavery question in Kansas, I plainly see you and I would differ about the Nebraska law. I look upon that enactment not as a law, but a violence from the beginning. It was conceived in violence, passed in violence, is maintained in violence, and is being executed in violence. I say it was conceived in violence because the destruction of the Missouri Compromise under the Constitution was nothing less than violence. 
It was passed in violence because it could not have passed at all but for the votes of many members in violent disregard of the known will of their constituents. It is maintained in violence because the elections since clearly demand its repeal, and the demand is openly disregarded. That Kansas will form a slave constitution, and with it will ask to be admitted into the Union, I take to be already a settled question, and so settled by the very means you so pointedly condemn. By every principle of law ever held by any court, north or south, every negro taken to Kansas is free. Yet in utter disregard of this, in the spirit of violence merely, that beautiful legislature gravely passes a law to hang any man who shall venture to inform a negro of his legal rights. This is the substance and real object of the law. If, like Hammond, they should hang upon the gallows of their own building, I shall not be among the mourners for their fate. In my humble sphere I shall advocate the restoration of the Missouri Compromise so long as Kansas remains a territory, and when by all these foul means it seeks to come into the Union as a slave state, I shall oppose it. You inquire where I now stand. That is a disputed point. I think I am a Whig. But others say there are no Whigs, and that I am an abolitionist. When I was in Washington I voted for the Wilmot Proviso as good as forty times, and I never heard of any attempt to unwhig me for that. I now do no more than oppose the extension of slavery. I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How can any one who abhors the oppression of the Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress in degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, all men are created equals except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to that, I should prefer emigrating to some other country where they make no pretense of loving liberty, to Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure, and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. Your friend forever, A. Lincoln. Lincoln was soon accorded an opportunity to cross swords again with his former political antagonist Douglas, who had lately come from his place in the Senate chamber at Washington, where he had carried the obnoxious Nebraska bill against the utmost efforts of Chase, Seward, Sumner, and others to defeat it. As Mr. Arnold narrates the incident, when late in September 1854 Douglas returned to Illinois, he was received with a storm of indignation which would have crushed a man of less power and will. A bold and courageous leader, conscious of his personal power over his party, he bravely met the storm and sought to allay it. In October 1854, the State Fair being then in session at Springfield, with a great crowd of people in attendance from all parts of the state, Douglas went there and made an elaborate and able speech in defense of the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. Lincoln was called upon by the opponents of this repeal to reply, and he did so with a power which he never surpassed, and had never before equaled. All other issues which had divided the people were as chaff, and were scattered to the winds by the intense agitation which arose on the question of extending slavery, not merely into free territory but into territory which had been declared free by solemn compact. Lincoln's speech occupied more than three hours in delivery, and during all that time he held the vast crowd in the deepest attention. Mr. Herndon said of this event, 
This anti-Nebraska speech of Mr. Lincoln was the profoundest that he had made in his whole life. He felt burning upon his soul the truths which he uttered, and all present felt that he was true to his own soul. His feelings once or twice came near stifling utterance. He quivered with emotion. He attacked the Nebraska bill with such warmth and energy that all felt that a man of strength was its enemy, and that he intended to blast it if he could by strong and manly efforts. He was most successful, and the House approved his triumph by loud and continued huzzas, while women waved their white handkerchiefs in token of heartfelt assent. Douglas felt the sting, and he frequently interrupted Mr. Lincoln. His friends felt that he was crushed by the powerful argument of his opponent. The Nebraska bill was shivered, and, like a tree of the forest, was torn and rent asunder by hot bolts of truth. At the conclusion of this speech, every man, woman, and child felt that it was unanswerable. In speaking of the same occasion, Mr. Lamon says, Many fine speeches were made upon the one absorbing topic, but it is no shame to any one of these orators that their really impressive speeches were but slightly appreciated or long remembered beside Mr. Lincoln's splendid and enduring performance, enduring in the memory of his auditors, although preserved upon no written or printed page. A few days after this encounter, Douglas spoke in Peoria and was followed by Lincoln with the same crushing arguments that had served him at the State Fair, and with the same triumphant effect. His Peoria speech was written out by him, and published after its delivery. A few specimens will show its style and argumentative power. End of chapter 9a Recording by Bill Borst